Secret, secret, I've got a secret. This week is all about secrets, lies, and videotape. Okay, well, maybe not that last one. Some secrets are worse than others, and this first story has an old man who just wants someone to play backgammon with. Paul de Kock, K-O-C-K, Charles Paul de Kock, was a very popular French author in the late 1800s, that is, in terms of book sales. He did rather well for himself, and his works were read pretty much everywhere. The critics, however, hated him, and even decried his very name as synonymous with bad literature. Well, even so, and don't tell anyone, I rather enjoyed this story. The Guilty Secret By Paul de Kock Natalie de Hauteville was 22 years old and had been a widow for three years. She was one of the prettiest women in Paris. Her large, dark eyes shone with remarkable brilliancy, and she united the sparkling vivacity of an Italian and the depth of feeling of a Spaniard to the grace which always distinguishes a Parisian born and bred. Considering herself too young to be entirely alone, she had long ago invited Monsieur d'Ablincourt, an old uncle of hers, to come and live with her. Monsieur d'Ablincourt was an old bachelor. He had never loved anything in this world but himself. He was an egotist, too lazy to do anyone an ill turn, but at the same time too selfish to do anyone a kindness, unless it would tend directly to his own advantage. And yet, with an air of complacence, as if he desired nothing so much as the comfort of those around him, he consented to his niece's proposal, in the hope that she would do many little kind offices for him, which would add materially to his comfort. Monsieur d'Ablincourt accompanied his niece when she resumed her place in society, but sometimes when he felt inclined to stay at home, he would say to her, My dear Natalie, I am afraid you will not be much amused this evening. They will only play cards. Besides, I don't think any of your friends will be there. Of course, I am ready to take you if you wish to go. And Natalie, who had great confidence in all her uncle said, would stay at home. In the same manner, Monsieur d'Ablincourt, who was a great gourmand, said to his niece, My dear, you know that I am not at all fond of eating, and am satisfied with the simplest fare, but I must tell you that your cook puts too much salt in everything. It is very unwholesome. So they changed the cook. Again, the garden was out of order. The trees before the old gentleman's window must be cut down because their shade would doubtless cause a dampness in the house prejudicial to Natalie's health, or the Surrey was to be changed for a Landau. Natalie was a coquette. Accustomed to charm, she listened with smiles to the numerous protestations of admiration which she received. She sent all who aspired to her hand to her uncle, saying, Before I give you any hope, I must know my uncle's opinion. It is likely that Natalie would have answered it differently if she had ever felt a real preference for anyone. But heretofore she seemed to have preferred her liberty. The old uncle, for his part, being now master in his niece's house, was very anxious for her to remain as she was. A nephew might be somewhat less submissive than Natalie. Therefore he never failed to discover some great fault in each of those who sought an alliance with the pretty widow. Besides his egotism and his Epicureanism, the dear uncle had another passion, to play backgammon. 
The game amused him very much, but the difficulty was to find anyone to play with. If by accident any of Natalie's visitors understood it, there was no escape from a long siege with the old gentleman. But most people preferred cards. In order to please her uncle, Natalie tried to learn this game, but it was almost impossible. She could not give her attention to one thing for so long a time. Her uncle scolded. Natalie gave up in despair. It was only for your own amusement that I wished to teach it to you, said the good Monsieur d'Ablincourt. Things were at this crisis when, at a ball one evening, Natalie was introduced to Monsieur d'Apremont, a captain in the Navy. Natalie raised her eyes, expecting to see a great sailor with a wooden leg and a bandage over one eye. When, to her great surprise, she beheld a man of about thirty, tall and finely formed, with two sound legs and two good eyes. Armand d'Apremont had entered the navy at a very early age, and had arrived, although very young, to the dignity of a captain. He had amassed a large fortune, in addition to his patrimonial estates, and he had now come home to rest after his labors. As yet, however, he was a single man, and moreover had always laughed at love. But when he saw Natalie, his opinions underwent a change. For the first time in his life, he regretted that he had never learned to dance, and he kept his eyes fixed on her constantly. His attentions to the young widow soon became a subject of general conversation, and at last the report reached the ears of Monsieur d'Ablincourt. When Natalie mentioned one evening that she expected the captain to spend the evening with her, the old man grew almost angry. Natalie, said he, you act entirely without consulting me. I have heard that the captain is very rude and unpolished in his manners. To be sure, I have only seen him standing behind your chair, but he has never even asked after my health. I only speak for your interest, as you are so giddy. Natalie begged her uncle's pardon, and even offered not to receive the captain's visit. But this he forbore to require, secretly resolving not to allow these visits to become too frequent. But how frail are all human resolutions, overturned by the merest trifle. In this case, the game of backgammon was the unconscious cause of Natalie's becoming Madame d'Apremont. The captain was an excellent hand at backgammon. When the uncle heard this, he proposed a game, and the captain, who understood that it was important to gain the uncle's favor, readily accepted. This did not please Natalie. She preferred that he should be occupied with herself. When all the company were gone, she turned to her uncle, saying, You were right, uncle, after all. I do not admire the captain's manners. I see now that I should not have invited him. On the contrary, niece, he is a very well-behaved man. I have invited him to come here very often and play backgammon with me, that is, to pay his addresses to you. Natalie saw that the captain had gained her uncle's heart, and she forgave him for having been less attentive to her. He soon came again, and thanks to the backgammon, increased in favor with the uncle. He soon captivated the heart of the pretty widow also. One morning, Natalie came blushing to her uncle. The captain has asked me to marry him. What do you advise me to do? He reflected for a few moments. If she refuses him, D'Apremont will come here no longer, and then no more backgammon. But if she marries him, he will be here always, and I shall have my games. And the answer was, you had better marry him. Natalie loved Armand, 
but she would not yield too easily. She sent for the captain. If you really love me, ah, can you doubt it? Hush, do not interrupt me. If you really love me, you will give me one proof of it. Anything you ask. I swear, no, you must never swear any more. And one thing more, you must never smoke. I detest the smell of tobacco, and I will not have a husband who smokes. Armand sighed and promised. The first months of their marriage passed smoothly, but sometimes Armand became thoughtful, restless, and grave. After some time, these fits of sadness became more frequent. What is the matter? asked Natalie one day, on seeing him stamp with impatience. Why are you so irritable? Nothing, nothing at all, replied the captain, as if ashamed of his ill humor. Tell me, Natalie insisted, have I displeased you in anything? The captain assured her that he had no reason to be anything but delighted with her conduct on all occasions, and for a time he was all right. Then soon he was worse than before. Natalie was distressed beyond measure. She imparted her anxiety to her uncle, who replied, Yes, my dear, I know what you mean. I have often remarked it myself at backgammon. He is very inattentive and often passes his hand over his forehead and starts up as if something agitated him. And one day, when his old habits of impatience and irritability reappeared, more marked than ever, the captain said to his wife, My dear, an evening walk will do me a world of good. An old sailor like myself cannot bear to sit around the house after dinner. Nevertheless, if you have any objection, oh no, what objection can I have? He went out and continued to do so, day after day at the same hour. Invariably, he returned in the best of good humor. Natalie was now unhappy indeed. He loves some other woman, perhaps, she thought, and he must see her every day. Oh, how wretched I am! but I must let him know that his perfidy is discovered. No, I will wait until I have some certain proof wherewith to confront him. And she went to seek her uncle. Ah, I am the most unhappy creature in the world, she sobbed. What is the matter? cried the old man, leaning back in his armchair. Armand leaves the house for two hours every evening after dinner and comes back in high spirits and as anxious to please me as on the day of our marriage. Oh, uncle, I cannot bear it any longer. If you do not assist me to discover where he goes, I will seek a separation. But my dear niece, my dear uncle, you who are so good and obliging, grant me this one favor. I am sure there is some woman in the secret. Monsieur d'Ablincourt wished to prevent the rupture between his niece and nephew, which would interfere very much with the quiet, peaceable life which he led at their house. He pretended to follow Armand, but came back very soon, saying he had lost sight of him. But in what direction does he go? Sometimes one way and sometimes another, but always alone, so your suspicions are unfounded. Be assured he only walks for exercise. But Natalie was not to be duped in this way. She sent for a little errand boy, of whose intelligence she had heard a great deal. Monsieur d'Abremont goes out every evening. Yes, madame. Tomorrow you will follow him. Observe where he goes and come and tell me privately. Do you understand? Yes, madame. Natalie waited impatiently for the next day and for the hour of her husband's departure. At last, the time came. The pursuit is going on. Natalie counted the moments. After three quarters of an hour, the messenger arrived, covered with dust. Well, exclaimed Natalie, 
Speak, tell me everything that you have seen. Madame, I followed Monsieur d'Apremont at a distance as far as the Rue Vieille du Temple, where he entered a small house in an alley. There was no servant to let him in. An alley? No servant? Dreadful! I went in directly after him and heard him go upstairs and unlock a door. Open the door himself without knocking. Are you sure of that? Yes, madame. The wretch! So he has a key! But go on. When the door shut after him, I stole softly upstairs and peeped through the keyhole. You shall have twenty francs more. I peeped through the keyhole and saw him drag a trunk along the floor. A trunk? Then he undressed himself and undressed himself. Then for a few seconds I could not see him, and directly he appeared again in a sort of gray blouse and a cap on his head. A blouse? What in the world does he want with a blouse? What next? I came away then, madame, and made haste to tell you, but he is there still. Well, now run to the corner and get me a cab, and direct the coachman to the house where you have been. While the messenger went for the cab, Natalie hurried on her hat and cloak and ran into her uncle's room. I have found him out! He loves another! He's at her house now, in a gray blouse! But I will go and confront him, and then you will see me no more. The old man had no time to reply. She was gone with her messenger in the cab. They stopped at last. Here is the house. Natalie got out, pale and trembling. Shall I go upstairs with you, madame? asked the boy. No, I will go alone. The third story, isn't it? Yes, madame. The left-hand door at the head of the stairs. It seemed that now, indeed, the end of all things was at hand. Natalie mounted the dark, narrow stairs and arrived at the door, and almost fainting, she cried, Open the door, or I shall die! The door was opened, and Natalie fell into her husband's arms. He was alone in the room, clad in a gray blouse, and smoking a Turkish pipe. My wife! exclaimed Armand, in surprise. Your wife! who, suspecting your perfidy, has followed you to discover the cause of your mysterious conduct. How, Natalie, my mysterious conduct? Look, here it is, showing his pipe. Before our marriage, you forbade me to smoke, and I promised to obey you. For some months I kept my promise, but you know what it cost me. You remember how irritable and sad I became. It was my pipe, my beloved pipe, that I regretted. One day in the country I discovered a little cottage where a peasant was smoking. I asked him if he could lend me a blouse and cap, for I should like to smoke with him, but it was necessary to conceal it from you, as the smell of smoke remaining in my clothes would have betrayed me. It was soon settled between us. I returned thither every afternoon to indulge in my favorite occupation, and with the precaution of a cap to keep the smoke from remaining in my hair, I contrived to deceive you. This is all the mystery. Forgive me. Natalie kissed him, crying, I might have known it could not be. I am happy now, and you shall smoke as much as you please at home. And Natalie returned to her uncle, saying, Uncle, he loves me. He was only smoking, but hereafter he is to smoke at home. I can arrange it all, said Dablincourt. He shall smoke while he plays backgammon. That way, thought the old man, I shall be sure of my game.
Sometimes a secret is just too much for us to hold in. Sometimes it just continues to drive forward, on and on, like the beating of one's heart. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously! Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. 
to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he, not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, though I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. 
Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha <laughs> ha! When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused, information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. 
it continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness. Until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. And sometimes the secret is us, either a deception of the self or our true self hidden away from others. I'll let you decide which one begins our next serialized story. Only two parts to this one, so you won't have to wait too long to find out who's fooling whom in the amateur. Amateur. By Richard Harding Davis. What? It was February off the banks, and so thick was the weather that on the upper decks one could have driven a sleigh. Inside the smoking room, Austin Ford, as securely sheltered from the blizzard as though he had been sitting in front of a wood fire at his club, ordered hot gin for himself and the ship's doctor. The ship's doctor had gone below on another hurry call from the widow. At the first luncheon on board, the widow had sat on the right of Dr. Sparrow, with Austin Ford facing her. 
but since then, except to the doctor, she had been invisible. So, at frequent intervals, the ill health of the widow had deprived the Ford of the society of the doctor. That it deprived him also of the society of the widow did not concern him. Her life had not been spent upon ocean liners. She could not remember when staterooms were named after the states of the Union. She could not tell him of shipwrecks and salvage, of smugglers, and of the modern pirates who found their victims in the smoking room. Ford was on his way to England to act as the London correspondent of the New York Republic. For three years on that most sensational of the New York dailies, he had been the star man, the chief muckraker, the chief sleuth. His interest was in crime. Not in crimes committed in passion or inspired by drink, but in such offenses against the law and society as are perpetrated with nice intelligence. The murderer, the burglar, the strong-armed men who in side streets waylay respectable citizens did not appeal to him. The man he studied, pursued, and exposed was the cashier who evolved a new method of covering up his peculations. The dishonest president of an insurance company. The confidence man who used no concealed weapon other than his wit. Toward the criminals he pursued, young Ford felt no personal animosity. He harassed them as he would have shot a hawk killing chickens. Not because he disliked the hawk, but because the battle was unequal, and because he felt sorry for the chickens. Had you called Austin Ford an amateur detective, he would have been greatly annoyed. He argued that his position was similar to that of the dramatic critic. The dramatic critic warned the public against bad plays. Ford warned it against bad men. Having done that, he left it to the public to determine whether the bad man should thrive or perish. When the managing editor told him of his appointment to London, Ford had protested that his work lay in New York. That of London and the English, except as a tourist and sightseer, he knew nothing. That's just why we are sending you, explained the managing editor. Our readers are ignorant. To make them read about London, you've got to tell them about themselves in London. They like to know who's been presented at court, about the American girls who have married dukes, and which one's opened a bazaar, and which one opened a hat shop, and which is getting a divorce. Don't send us anything concerning suffragettes and dreadnoughts. Just send us stuff about Americans. If you take your meals in the Carlton Grill Room and drink at the Cecil, you can pick up more good stories than we can print. You will find lots of your friends over there. Some of those girls who married dukes, he suggested, know you, don't they? Not since they married dukes, said Ford. Well, anyway, all your other friends will be there, continued the managing editor encouragingly. Now that they have shut up the tracks here, all the con men have gone to London. They say an American can't take a drink at the Salisbury without his fellow countrymen having a fight as to which one will sell him a gold brick. Ford's eyes lightened in pleasurable anticipation. Look them over, urged the managing editor, and send us a special. Call it... The American Invasion. Don't you see a story in it? It will be the first one I send you, said Ford. The ship's doctor returned from his visit below decks and sank into the leather cushion close to Ford's elbow. For a few moments, the older man sipped doubtfully at his gin and water and, as though perplexed, rubbed his hand over his bald and shining head. I told her to talk to you, he said fretfully. Her? Who? inquired Ford. Oh, the widow? You were right about that, said Dr. Sparrow. She is not a widow. The reporter smiled complacently. Do you know why I thought not, he demanded. Because all the time she was at luncheon, she kept turning over her wedding ring as though she was not used to it, 
It was a new ring, too. I told you then she was not a widow. Do you always notice things like that? asked the doctor. Not on purpose, said the amateur detective. I can't help it. I see ten things where other people see only one, just as some men run ten times as fast as other men. We have tried it out often at the office, put all sorts of junk under a newspaper, lifted the newspaper for five seconds, and then each man wrote down what he had seen. Out of twenty things, I would remember seventeen. The next best guess would be about nine. Once I saw a man lift his coat collar to hide his face. It was in the Grand Central Station. I stopped him and told him he was wanted. Turns out he was wanted. It was Goldberg making his getaway to Canada. It is a gift, said the doctor. No, it's a nuisance, laughed the reporter. I see so many things I don't want to see. I see that people are wearing clothes that are not made for them. I see when women are lying to me. I can see when men are on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and whether it is drink or dead or morphine. The doctor snorted triumphantly. You did not see that the widow was on the verge of a breakdown. No, returned the reporter. Is she? I'm sorry. If you're sorry, urged the doctor eagerly, you'll help her. She is going to London alone to find her husband. He has disappeared. She thinks that he has been murdered, or that he is lying ill in some hospital. I told her if anyone could help her to find him, you could. I had to say something. She's very ill. To find her husband in London, repeated Ford. London is a large town. She has photographs of him, and she knows where he spends his time, pleaded the doctor. He is a company promoter. It should be easy for you. Maybe he doesn't want her to find him, said Ford. Then it wouldn't be so easy for me. The old doctor sighed heavily. I know, he murmured. I thought of that too. And she is so very pretty. That was another thing I noticed said Ford. The doctor gave no heed. She must stop worrying, he exclaimed, or she will have a mental collapse. I have tried sedatives, but they don't touch her. I want to give her courage. She is frightened. She's left a baby boy at home, and she's fearful that something will happen to him, and she's frightened at being at sea, frightened at being alone in London. It's pitiful. The old man shook his head. Pitiful. Will you talk to her now? He asked. Nonsense, exclaimed Ford. She doesn't want to tell the story of her life to strange young men. But it was she suggested it, cried the doctor. She asked me if you were Austin Ford, the great detective. Ford snorted scornfully. She did not, he protested. His tone was that of a man who hopes to be contradicted. But she did, insisted the doctor. And I told her your specialty was tracing persons. Her face lightened at once. It gave her hope. She will listen to you. Speak very gently and kindly and confidently. Say you are sure you can find him. Where is the lady now? asked Ford. Dr. Sparrow scrambled eagerly to his feet. She cannot leave her cabin, he answered. The widow, as Ford and Dr. Sparrow still thought of her, was lying on the sofa that ran the length of the stateroom, parallel with the lower berth. She was fully dressed, except that instead of her bodice, she wore a kimono that left her throat and arms bare. She had been sleeping, and when their entrance awoke her, her blue eyes regarded them uncomprehendingly. Ford, hidden from her by the doctor, observed that not only was she very pretty, but that she was absurdly young, and that the drowsy smile she turned upon the old man before she noted the presence of Ford was as innocent as that of a baby. Her cheeks were flushed, 
her eyes brilliant, her yellow curls had become loosened and were spread upon the pillow. When she saw Ford, she caught the kimono so closely around her throat that she choked. Had the doctor not pushed her down, she would have stood. I thought, she stammered, he was an old man. The doctor, misunderstanding, hastened to reassure her. Mr. Ford is old in experience, he said soothingly. He has had remarkable success. Why, he found a criminal once just because the man wore a collar. And he found Walsh, the burglar, and Phillips, the forger, and a gang of counterfeiters. Mrs. Ashton turned upon him, her eyes wide with wonder. But my husband, she protested, is not a criminal. My dear lady, the doctor cried. I did not mean that. Of course not. I meant, if Mr. Ford can find men who don't wish to be found, how easy for him to find a man who... He turned helplessly to Ford. You tell her, he begged. Ford sat down on a steamer trunk that protruded from beneath the berth, and turning to the widow, gave her the full benefit of his working smile. It was confiding, helpless, appealing. It showed a trustfulness in the person to whom it was addressed that caused that individual to believe Ford needed protection from a wicked world. Dr. Sparrow tells me, began Ford timidly, you have lost your husband's address, that you will let me try to find him. If I can help in any way, I should be glad. The young girl regarded him, apparently, with disappointment. It was as though Dr. Sparrow had led her to expect a man full of years and authority, a man upon whom she could lean not a youth whose smile seemed to beg one not to scold him. She gave Ford three photographs, bound together with a string. When Dr. Sparrow told me you could help me, I got out these, she said. Ford jotted down a mental note to the effect that she got them out. That is, she did not keep them where she could always look at them. That she was not used to look at them was evident by the fact that they were bound together. The first photograph showed three men standing in an open place and leaning on a railing. One of them was smiling toward the photographer. He was a good-looking young man of about thirty years of age, well-fed, well-dressed, and apparently well-satisfied with the world and himself. Ford's own smile had disappeared. His eyes were alert and interested. The one with the Panama hat pulled down over his eyes is your husband? he asked. Yes, assented the widow. Her tone showed slight surprise. This was taken about a year ago, inquired Ford. It must have been, he answered himself. They haven't raced at the bay since then. This was taken in front of the club stand, uh, probably for the telegraph? He lifted his eyes inquiringly. Rising on her elbow, the young wife bent forward toward the photograph. Does it say that there? she asked doubtfully. How did you guess that? In his role as chorus, the ship's doctor exclaimed with enthusiasm, Didn't I tell you? He's wonderful! Ford cut him off impatiently. You never saw a rail as high as that except around a racetrack, he muttered. And the badge in his buttonhole and the angle of the stand all show... He interrupted himself to address the widow. This is an owner's badge. What was the name of his stable? I don't know, she answered. She regarded the young man with sudden uneasiness. They only owned one horse, but I believe that gave them the privilege of... I see, exclaimed Ford. Your husband is a bookmaker but in London he is a promoter of companies. So my friend tells me, said Mrs. Ashton. She's just got back from London. Her husband told her that Harry, my husband, was always at the American bar in the Cecil or at the Salisbury or the Savoy. The girl shook her head. But a woman can't go looking for a man there, she protested. That's why I thought you... That'll be all right, 
Ford assured her hurriedly. It's a coincidence, but it happens that my own work takes me to these hotels, and if your husband is there, I will find him. He returned the photographs. Hadn't you better keep one? she asked. I won't forget him, said the reporter. Besides, he turned his eyes toward the doctor, and as though thinking aloud, said, He may have grown a beard. There was a pause. The eyes of the woman grew troubled, her lips pressed together as though in a sudden access of pain. And he may, Ford continued, have changed his name. As though fearful if she spoke, the tears would fall, the girl nodded her head stiffly. Having learned what he wanted to know, Ford applied to the wound a soothing ointment of promises and encouragement. He's as good as found, he protested. You will see him in a day, two days after you land. The girl's eyes opened happily. She clasped her hands together and raised them. You will try, she begged. You will find him for me, she corrected herself eagerly. For me and the baby? The loose sleeves of the kimono fell back to her shoulders, showing the white arms. The eyes raised to Ford were glistening with tears. Of course I will find him, growled the reporter. He freed himself from the appeal in the eyes of the young mother and left the cabin. The doctor followed. He was bubbling over with enthusiasm. That was fine, he cried. You said just the right thing. There will be no collapse now. His satisfaction was swept away in a burst of disgust. The blackguard, he protested. To desert a wife as young as that and as pretty as that. So I have been thinking, said the reporter. I guess, he added gravely, what is going to happen is that before I find her husband, I will have got to know him pretty well. Apparently, young Mrs. Ashton believed everything would come to pass just as Ford promised it would, and as he chose to order it. For the next day, with a color not born of fever in her cheeks and courage in her eyes, she joined Ford and the doctor at the luncheon table. Her attention was concentrated on the younger man. In him, she saw the one person who could bring her husband to her. She acts, growled the doctor later in the smoking room as though she was afraid you were going to back out of your promise and jump overboard. Don't think, he protested violently. It's you she's interested in. All she sees in you is what you can do for her. Can you see that? Anyone as clever at seeing things as I am, returned the reporter, cannot help but see that. Later, as Ford was walking on the upper deck, Mrs. Ashton came toward him, beating her way against the wind. Without a trace of coquetry or self-consciousness, and with a sigh of content, she laid her hand on his arm. When I don't see you, she exclaimed as simply as a child, I feel so frightened. When I see you, I know all will come right. Do you mind if I walk with you? she asked. And do you mind if every now and then I ask you to tell me again it will all come right? For the three days following, Mrs. Ashton and Ford were constantly together. Or, at least, Mrs. Ashton was constantly with Ford. She told him that when she sat in her cabin, the old fears returned to her, and in these moments of panic she searched the ship for him. The doctor protested that he was growing jealous. I'm not so greatly to be envied, suggested Ford. Harry at meals three times a day and on deck all the rest of the day becomes monotonous. On a closer acquaintance with Harry, he seems to be a decent sort of a young man, at least he seems to have been at one time very much in love with her. Well, sighed the doctor sentimentally, she is certainly very much in love with Harry. Ford shook his head noncommittingly. I don't know her story, he said. Don't want to know it. The ship was in the channel, on her way to Cherbourg, 
and running as smoothly as a clock. From the shore, friendly lights told them they were nearing their journey's end, that the land was on every side. Seated on a steamer chair next to his in the semi-darkness of the deck, Mrs. Ashton began to talk nervously and eagerly. Now that we are so near, she murmured, I have got to tell you something. If you did not know, I would feel I had not been fair. You might think that when you were doing so much for me, I should have been more honest. She drew a long breath. It's so hard, she said. Wait, commanded Ford. Is it going to help me to find him? No. Then don't tell me. His tone caused the girl to start. She leaned toward him and peered into his face. His eyes, as he looked back to her, were kind and comprehending. You mean, said the amateur detective, that your husband has deserted you. That if it were not for the baby, you would not try to find him. Is that it? Mrs. Ashton breathed quickly and turned her face away. Yes, she whispered. That is it. There was a long pause. When she faced him again, the fact that there was no longer a secret between them seemed to give her courage. Maybe, she said, you can understand. Maybe you can tell me what it means. I have thought and thought. I have gone over it and over it until when I go back to it my head aches. I have done nothing else but think, and I can't make it seem better. I can't find any excuse. I have had no one to talk to, no one I could tell. I have thought maybe a man could understand. She raised her eyes appealingly. If you can only make it seem less cruel. Don't you see? She cried miserably. I want to believe. I want to forgive him. I want to think he loves me. Oh, I want so to be able to love him. But how can I? I can't. I can't. In the week in which they had been thrown together, the girl unconsciously had told Ford much about herself and her husband. What she now told him was but an amplification of what he had guessed. She had met Ashton a year and a half before, when she had just left school at the convent and had returned to live with her family. Her home was at Far Rockaway. Her father was a cashier in a bank at Long Island City. One night, with a party of friends, she had been taken to a dance at one of the beach hotels and there met Ashton. At that time, he was one of a firm that was making book at the aqueduct racetrack. The girl had met very few men, and with them was shy and frightened. But with Ashton, she found herself at once at ease. That night he drove her and her friends home in his touring car, and the next day they teased her about her conquest. It made her very happy. After that, she went to hops at the hotel, and as the bookmaker did not dance, the two young people sat upon the piazza. Then Ashton came to see her at her own house, but when her father learned that the young man who had been calling upon her was a bookmaker, he told him he could not associate with his daughter. But the girl was now deeply in love with Ashton, and apparently he with her. He begged her to marry him. They knew that to this, partly from prejudice and partly owing to his position in the bank, her father would object. Accordingly, they agreed that in August, when the racing moved to Saratoga, they would run away and get married at that place. Their plan was that Ashton would leave for Saratoga with the other racing men and that she would join him the next day. They had arranged to be married by a magistrate, and Ashton had shown her a letter from one at Saratoga who consented to perform the ceremony. He had given her an engagement ring and $2,000, which he asked her to keep for him, lest tempted at the track he should lose it. But she assured Ford it was not such material things as a letter, a ring, or gift of money that had led her to trust Ashton. His fear of losing her, 
His complete subjection to her wishes, his happiness in her presence, all seemed to prove that to make her happy was his one wish, and that he could do anything to make her unhappy appeared impossible. They were married the morning she arrived at Saratoga, and the same day departed for Niagara Falls and Quebec. The honeymoon lasted ten days. They were ten days of complete happiness. No one, so the girl declared, could have been more kind, more unselfishly considerate than her husband. They returned to Saratoga and engaged a suite of rooms at one of the big hotels. Ashton was not satisfied with the rooms shown him, and leaving her upstairs, returned to the office floor to ask for others. Since that moment, his wife had never seen him nor heard from him. On the day of her marriage, young Mrs. Ashton had written to her father, asking him to give her his good wishes and pardon. He refused both. As she had feared, he did not consider that for a bank clerk, a gambler made a desirable son-in-law, and the letters he wrote his daughter were so bitter that in reply she informed him he had forced her to choose between her family and her husband, and that she chose her husband. In consequence, when she found herself deserted, she felt she could not return to her people. She remained in Saratoga. There she moved into cheap lodgings, and in order that the $2,000 Ashton had left with her might be saved for his child, she had learned to typewrite, and after four months had been able to support herself. Within the last month, a girlfriend, who had known both Ashton and herself before they were married, had written her that her husband was living in London. For the sake of her son, she had at once determined to make an effort to seek him out. The son? Nonsense! exclaimed the doctor, when Ford retold the story. She is not crossing the ocean because she is worried about the future of her son. She seeks her own happiness. The woman is in love with her husband. Ford shook his head. I don't know, he objected. She's so extravagant in her praise of Harry that it seems unreal. It sounds insincere. Then again, when I swear I will find him, she shows a delight that you might describe as savage, almost vindictive. As though, if I did find Harry, the first thing she would do would be to stick a knife in him. Maybe, volunteered the doctor sadly, she has heard there is a woman in the case. Maybe she is the one she's thinking of sticking the knife into. Well, declared the reporter, if she doesn't stop looking savage every time I promise to find Harry, I won't find Harry. Why should I act the part of fate anyway? How do I know that Harry hasn't got a wife in London and several in the States? How do we know he didn't leave his country for his country's good? That's what it looks like to me. How can we tell what confronted him the day he went down to the hotel desk to change his rooms and instead got into his touring car and beat the speed limit to Canada? Whom did he meet in the hotel corridor? A woman with a perfectly good marriage certificate or a detective with a perfectly good warrant? Or did Harry find out that his bride had a devil of a temper of her own and that for him marriage was a failure? The widow is certainly a very charming young woman, but there may be two sides to this. You are a cynic, sir, protested the doctor. That may be, growled the reporter, but I am not a private detective agency or a matrimonial bureau, and before I hear myself saying, bless you, my children, both of these young people will have to show me why they should not be kept asunder.
Next week, the game, as a certain detective says, shall be afoot. Hopefully one of these issues will even feature said detective. Until then, we'll have to make do with playing pretend. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.